Before we get into the word, we have a few announcements. This coming Saturday is our last work day of the year. That'll kick off at 8.30. So if you can be here, we usually wrap up around 11.30 or 12, and we have lunch together. So it's a good time, and it kind of helps send us and uh, kind of prepare things as we hit uh, winter. Second, a week from today, we will be doing some packing of the Operation Christmas Child boxes right downstairs below us. So we, we're going to be packing hopefully around 200 boxes, I think, is what we're shooting for. So um, that'll be shortly after church ends next week. Make plans to um, be there for it. It's actually quite a lot of fun. We set up like a little uh, uh, assembly line, so and we get jamming pretty quick. It actually doesn't take super long, but it's, it's fun to be a part of that. Then um, thirdly, uh, Roger Powers had something that he wanted to share. We got a mic for you there, Roger. I just, first of all, wanted to say that I'm glad to be back in a church after about a month and a half. Woo! Uh, my wife and I, for those who don't know what happened, my wife and I got COVID last month. And we're both, well, I'm over 60 and she's in her 50s. And yes, it does affect older people a lot worse. Uh, it had me down for about a week and it had my wife down for a couple of weeks. And then she ended up going in the hospital. Uh, they diagnosed her with COVID pneumonia and I uh, was a... I was afraid she couldn't breathe, and she was afraid. But I want to say uh, this didn't take God by surprise, and uh, I know that he uses, I, I grew up with a grandmother who told me that everything, uh, everything bad in the world, God could take and turn it into something good. So she said, don't let things worry you, Roger. And uh, I was a little scared at first, but then I started talking to God, and he calmed me down and said, I got this. Don't worry. I'll use it for my glory. Right. So me and my wife prayed in the, par uh, in the uh, parking lot at the hospital and in our driveway before we left, and we asked God to take this and use it for his glory. And she told me the whole time she was in the hospital, she didn't have not one bad attitude person there. Everybody was great and helped her out. So God sent the right people in to deal with her. And he got her back up on her feet within about five days, and she's back home now. But she's about 70%. She's getting there. But the reason I wanted to make a statement this morning is because I also know that my grandmother used to be a servant of Christ. That's all she ever did. And I, I grew up watching her feed us at the dinner table and making sure everybody was great. And then all of a sudden, she'd go sit down and read her Bible and wouldn't even eat with us. And at nighttime, she would cover us all up and make sure we were nice and warm before she would go to bed. And I asked her, why don't you get involved? And she says, I'm serving God. That's my job. And uh, I come to realize that while we were out, there's a lot of people in this church that follows that same uh, philosophy. And I just wanted to say thanks to and express my uh, gratification for all those people who did reach out to us during this whole month and a half. First of all, I want to thank Mike, or Pastor Bond. Uh, he just about called me every day to do an update on not only me, but also on my wife, and he offered the prayers. Uh, I wanted to uh, thank uh, Pastor Witty. He got a hold of me as well. So we got good leaders in this church. They're good shepherds, and uh, you can trust them. Second of all, I want to thank all the people who contacted us by text messages and by email. Uh, we got several different people that just constantly kept calling and letting us know that we were in their thoughts and in their prayers. And 
Prayers is what I was looking for, and I appreciate all those. It, they were uplifting. And last but not least, I want to say thanks to all the people who did the uh, meal. They delivered meals to our house. Uh, it was, it was uh, we couldn't get up and put a piece of uh, uh, butter on a piece of toast, but we had meals. My wife would text me, and she said, somebody knocked on the door, and apparently they were letting her know. I didn't have any idea. I'd go on the front porch, and here's this hot meal sitting out there, and the meals were great. Now, let me tell you, as a boy growing up, I had a mother who cooked, and I watched. Sometimes she cooked, and she had to hurry up and throw a meal together, and they were fine. But then there was times when she cooked, and she put tender, loving care into that meal for her family. And I could see the difference as I got older. I will tell you that the people who made these meals put tender, loving care in them. They were doing God's work. Uh, they were a servant, and I just wanted to say thank you to all of those. And I also have all your containers. I washed and <laughs> cleaned them all. I'll probably bring them in next week. But I just wanted to say thank you because God took care, uh, took charge of all this, and and I'm so grateful that I have people who listen to the Lord and do His following. Yes, awesome. Praise the Lord. We do have an awesome body. Thank you, Jesus. One last announcement. We have a new addition to our church family right here. We're going to show him off just for a couple seconds if you want to stand up. I'll let, I'll let David introduce him. Oh, this is John Cooper McNeil. Give it up for John. Born two weeks ago. How's everyone doing, Meg? Yeah, doing well. Okay. I bet. Awesome. Awesome. Great. All right, with that. I'm going to hand it over to David Snyder to preach the word. Is there, are the kids going, and then I'm going to let the kids go to their um, Christmas musical practice. Today we let the, the kids go and we lose half the congregation. <laughs> All right. So uh, Lorraine always, um, should I say, challenges me or, or uh, says that I should be um, more of a salesperson, so to speak, in, regarding, uh, in regards to our Sunday morning uh, Bible study that we have before church. And so this is in honor of Lorraine that, um, that I'm going to be preaching on John chapter 2 today. Uh, John chapter 2 is where we're going to be. Um, usually Sunday morning is probably a little bit more didactic, so I'll be uh, preaching this morning. Um, and I know some of you in your minds have said, oh great, that guy. Um, now I can't beat the Baptist to Cracker Barrel um, because my sermons go a bit. When I'm given the opportunity, and I'm very appreciative and humbled by the opportunity to bring the word to you this morning. Let's start John chapter 2. I'm going to read it, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. 
And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed him. Let's pray. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to the one who is Lord over all. Glory to the one who rules and reigns over all of creation. Glory to God who made Himself known to us most beautifully in the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory to God in the highest for seeing us in our need, recognizing our hopelessness and acting to change that. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask Your Spirit to come and be with us this morning to help us so that we have that wonderful, mysterious convergence of Word and Spirit. Dear God, it's not enough to have the Word without the Spirit, and it's not enough to have the Spirit without the Word. We must always have both in indivisible oneness. And so now we ask that your Spirit will attend our efforts as we seek to make plain the meaning of this text. This book won't change anybody apart from the work of your Spirit. Father, all of us, as one people, we now come before you and ask on the merits of Jesus that you would grant us the influence, the effect that only the Holy Spirit can produce in us. And we promise to thank you for it. In your son's matchless name, Jesus. Amen. The wine ran out. The wine ran out. For the famous 20th century American novelist, Ernest Hemingway, the wine ran out. From his earliest days as a young boy in Oak Park, Illinois, and as a teenager in northern Michigan, he went after every single drop that life could offer him. He became a reporter for the Kansas City Star, and upon his graduation from high school, only a few moments, uh, months later, he would leave for the Italian front so that he could enlist with the World War I ambulance drivers. 
He spent years in Europe working as a foreign correspondent directly involved in the Spanish Civil War. He participated in the running of the bulls in Pamplona, Spain. He hunted in safari in East Africa. He took fishing expeditions off the coast of Florida. He was present at Normandy at the landings on D-Day. Later, he witnessed the liberation of Paris, earning a bronze star for bravery in World War II. His famous friendships ran all the way from the bullfighter Madalente to the novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald. He was married four times, fathered three children. Winner of the Nobel Prize, the, the Pulitzer Prize, he was brilliant. His great stories reveal his unique genius. He did it all, Hemingway. Pursuing life as vigorously as he could. In fact, in one of his novels, The Snows of Kilimanjaro, which is largely autobiographical, his wife says of the dying hunter, her husband, Why, you are the most complete man I've ever met. Words that reflected the author's own self-perception. Sports, warfare, hunting, romance, writing, Hemingway sought to squeeze every drop out of the vintage of life. And then the wine ran out. Listen to the words of his biographer. Sunday morning dawned bright and cloudless. Ernest awoke early as always. He put on his red emperor's robe and padded softly down the carpeted stairway. The early sunlight lay in pools on the living room floor. He had noticed that the guns were locked up in the basement, but the keys, as he well knew, knew were on the window ledge above the sink. He tipped down the basement stairs and unlocked the storage room. It smelled as dank as a grave. He chose a double-barreled shotgun with a tight choke, one he's used for years at pigeon shooting. He took some shells, one from one of the boxes in the storage room, closed and locked the door, and climbed the basement stairs. If he saw the bright day outside, it did not deter him. He crossed the living room room into the foyer, the front foyer, a shrine-like entry five feet by seven with oak-paneled walls and a floor of linoleum tile. He slipped in two shells, lowered the gun butt carefully to the floor, leaned forward, and pressed the twin barrels against his forehead, just above the eyebrows. And he tripped both triggers. He was 61 years old. He was pursuing life to the full, and then the wine ran out. Of course, there have been many before him, many since, people who, do, who have sought meaning and happiness in the aspiration of experiencing everything life has to offer, only to eventually discover that even the greatest pleasures of this fallen creation are inadequate substitutes for eternal life in the God who gives it. It's what this passage here this morning, John chapter 2, is intended to say to us. Now, you might say, I know this text, I know it, I've read it many times, I've heard it preached, and to be quite honest, 
I don't even understand why it's in the Bible. I mean, it seems so secular. And I used to think this way, but that's because I didn't know my Bible well enough. And once, once more, I missed a huge clue at the end of this text where John refers to this supernatural natural act as not a miracle, something to take your breath away, but a sign, something intended to point you beyond itself. Jesus turning the water into wine was never intended to be an ornament, but a window revealing the landscape of an entirely new creation distinguished by everlasting satisfaction. It's here, church, this morning to tell you why you need eternal life and more importantly, to point you to the one who is the source of it. Because sooner or later, though you pursue life with everything that you have in you, you will arrive at a moment when the wine runs out. This passage tells you why you should believe in Jesus Christ. And so I want you along with me to watch it unfold in four scenes that seamlessly flow from one into the next. To begin with, a joyous celebration. A joyous celebration. Verse 1. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. That's kind of interesting. Take a look at verse 11. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. In Cana of Galilee. That's the same exact phrase. Taken together, they serve as bookends, binding together this section in, in, type, in a type of literary envelope. But this doesn't mean that it bears no relationship to what precedes it. So what do we know about Cana? Honestly, not a whole lot. It's a small Galilean village less than 10 miles away from Nazareth, which may indicate why, notice the end of verse 1, and the mother of Jesus was there. It's not beyond the realm of possibility that Mary was related to one or both of these families. At the very least, a good family friend. Since you'll see in a moment, she may have had some responsibility for the food at this wedding celebration. What else do we know about Cana? Well, in the previous chapter, if, you, if you're familiar, um, it doesn't say it there, but Nathaniel was from Cana. He was from Cana. We, we read that in John chapter 21. But we know he is from Cana, and you might say, who cares? Well... John obviously cares, given the fact that he begins the next section, or this section, with the phrase, on the third day. On the third day since when? Since the last day narrated narrated in this story, which leads us to the prior chapter. And what happened then? On that day, Nathanael met his Messiah. Nathanael met Jesus and became the recipient of this promise in chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus answered and said to him, that's Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. So here now, on this third day since meeting Jesus, 
that original day plus two that follow in Nathaniel's own village, maybe the wedding of one of his own his relatives. He was he was given the first of many fulfillments to this promise. But how do we even know that Nathaniel was there? Because verse two tells us. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, just to set the context for you, what disciples are these? Well, if you've read the previous chapter, it's the five to whom you've already been introduced. Um, five is a consequence of, of a chain of reaction of witness, starting with John the Baptist. We have Andrew. We have an unnamed disciple, John most likely. We have Simon Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. By the time we get to chapter 6 in John, we'll read about the 12, but in this gospel, John never tells us how the other seven become followers of Jesus. What he is clear about, though, is the occasion of this sign. A wedding. I can't overplay how significant weddings were in the village culture of Palestine. They were huge events, the happiest and most joyous celebrations of the entire year, especially among the poor. Announced far in advance, wealthy people were expected to invite the entire community, the entire village, and nearby villages. Less affluent people would invite as many people as they possibly could afford. It was considered socially inappropriate to refuse a wedding invitation. That's different than today. Even though you might not have liked the bride or groom, it was not acceptable to not accept the wedding invitation. And by the way, the bride and the groom, they were to be regarded as a king and a queen. They actually wore crowns on their head and their word was considered law. According to custom, weddings lasted ideally seven days. While some guests would go, would come and go during this time, many family members and friends would remain the entire week, even if it meant abstaining from work. In a culture frequently marked by bitter hardship and poverty, a wedding was the supreme occasion of community festivity. Of course, church, what I've been telling you thus far, John doesn't spell out here in any detail because these were the common assumptions about weddings in the social world that he was writing in. For you and me, admittedly, it's a bit unusual. Our wedding customs are different than theirs, though much more pronounced in the Middle East, the ancient Middle East, the notion of this Wedding as a joyous occasion is something you and I can somewhat comprehend, right? What's not so easily understood by people like us is the dark side, the scandalous, the mistake, the blunder that now presents itself in this second scene as the wedding celebration almost certainly moves into the latter portions of the seven days, resulting in a joyous occasion moving and threatened by a disastrous situation. 
and I do mean disastrous without the slightest hint of exaggeration. The wine ran out. Verse 4. And when they ran out of wine. Now, that's pretty bad, right? They ran out of wine. You can be here at uh, Reformation Wednesday. Sometimes we have food here, right? We have, um, I think Justice sometimes orders Emo's Pizza. You're familiar with Emo's Pizza? It's St. Louis' special pizza. Um, it's got Provel cheese on it, and Justice is a great guy. He always orders for me one pizza set aside with mozzarella. And then what happens is, is I get behind all the IGY team, and by the time that I get to the pizza, it's gone. And I'm forced to choke down the Provel pizza. It's terrible. It's, it's a, just about a social catastrophe for me anyway. And, and in case if you, you don't understand this, the etymology, so I know uh, we have the cooks back there, and they might have studied this a little bit. The etymology of the word provel, you can hear the evil in it, right? Provel, you can hear hell, can't you? It's, it's right there, it's in it. Anyway, that was pretty bad, but this, my friends, is a social catastrophe. In this, I remind you, a shame culture. The financial responsibilities for weddings and the celebration of weddings in the Middle East lay with the groom. And all the parents of daughters say, Amen. What's more, given their community significance, there was a very strong element of reciprocity about them, so much so that it was actually possible to take legal action against a man who failed to provide the appropriate hospitality, especially with regard to the provision of wine. Because in Jewish thought, wine was the quintessential symbol of joy and exhilaration. To run out of wine, it would take years for this new couple to get over the social stigma that would become the talk of the community, let alone out of debt as a result of any legal action taken against them. The potential here for embarrassment, the potential for humiliation, it's just not the best way to enter a marriage. Well, at this point, only a few are mindful of this disaster. The bride and the groom, they don't have a clue. The master of ceremonies, he's totally unaware. But among those who do know, the anxiety is growing by the minute. What are we to do? Verse 3. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, how does Mary know this? I mean, is she responsible for the catering? We don't know. She may be. Or given that women were ordinarily separated from the men at such events, might it be that Mary had been sitting near to where the food was being prepared and somehow had taken notice of the panic on the faces of the serving staff? 
The text doesn't tell us. But what it does tell us is that having become aware of the problem, she brings it to Jesus. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why bring it to Jesus? Does he look like a caterer? You say, David, come on. It's because she wants Jesus to perform a miracle. Really? On what basis do you suggest this? He has not performed a miracle before. I'm going to give you something to consider. In all probability, Joseph, Mary's husband, is long since dead. The last time we read of him is when Jesus was 12 years old. Jesus is now around 30. Luke tells us so. What's more, Jesus was not known merely as the carpenter's son. He was now known as the carpenter. It may be very well um, well be that the family's economic well-being was sustained by Jesus' manual labor. The point I'm trying to make Like any widow, Mary may have leaned very hard on her firstborn son, which of course would have been an exceedingly easy thing to do given the type of son he was. But beyond all of this now, you have to remember that Mary has never forgotten the prophecy given to her by the angel Gabriel that she would give birth to the Messiah. In invalidation of this, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit upon her that resulted in the conception of this child while she was still yet a virgin. Now, all of that in her mind. What does she see when Jesus arrives here in Cana? The evidence of his ministry beginning his first five disciples, right? So she's bright enough to connect the dots. The time has come. It's finally here. It's all beginning just like Gabriel promised. Which means then that there may be more than just her reliance upon him as a faithful son, but that she may indeed be proving to be something of a stage mother, urging Jesus to use the opportunity to reveal himself to everyone as the Messiah she knew him to be. Now's the time. Seize the day, son. The opportunity's here. Claim your destiny. His response, and this is why I would bring this to your consideration, because his response here is interesting. His response in verse 4, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, in referring to her as woman... Jesus is not being discourteous or harsh. That's how it sounds to our English ears. I assure you that this is a term of respect and honor, a term that Jesus uses on many occasions when addressing women. But, it's not mother, is it? It's not the preferred form of address on the part of a son to his much-loved mother. If, however, Mary was prepared to overlook the mild sting, the phrase that follows it would have pierced her much more deeply. 
Some Bible versions sanitize it a bit, but the original text reads like this. What to me unto you? Woman, what to me unto you? It's a very common Semitic idiom used in both Testaments. It's not intended to be mean or rude, but it is abrupt. And it does carry with it a measure of rebuke. Its purpose is to create a sense of distance between the speaker and the one being spoken to. What do you and I have in common insofar as this matter is concerned? How do you think that made Mary feel? It reminds me of that scene when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to be circumcised. And that old man, that wonderful old man, Simeon, takes that baby up in his arms and after praising God, he looks directly at Mary and says, a sword will pierce your soul. Woman, what to me unto you? It's no doubt a part of that piercing. It's obvious to you. It should be anyway. She had borne him. She had nursed him. She had kissed him. She had held him. She had changed him. She sang to him. She taught his baby fingers how to work. She watched him fall over as he learned how to walk. She sang to him as a child to put him to sleep. But now, she can no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. The prerogatives of motherhood is being taken from her. In fact, my friends, every single time the Gospels mention Mary during the ministry of Jesus, he's at pains to establish distance between them. You may remember that occasion in Matthew chapter 12. Jesus, Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. They want to speak to you. Do you remember his response? Pointing to his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You can hear the distance. You can hear the detachment. You can feel the piercing. She has been his mother. She must become his disciple. Which means that never again can Mary presume to dictate to him. Like every other person, she must come to him as her Messiah and her Lord. This one, like no other child before him, this one for his entire life had been perfectly submissive, submissive to her. His son can no longer be submissive to the desire of his earthly mother, but only exclusively to the will of his heavenly father. It is a redefinition of their relationship, which for Mary must have been incredibly painful unimaginably heartbreaking. And then at the very end of this phrase, we get here at the start of this redefined relationship as Jesus is doing, we, we have something that Jesus refers to as my hour 
my hour. And if you read the Gospel of John, this is the first of his repeated references to a moment in the future that will finally consummate in the most explicit revelation of who he really is. That moment in which God will be fully glorified in him. A moment, you see, that must never ever be manipulated by a human agenda, not even his mother's. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine. Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. You want to push me out into the public stage so that people can see your boy as the Messiah. My dear woman, the stage my father has ordained for me is a cross on a hill called Golgotha. And this is not that time. Now, does Mary understand all of what Jesus is saying? I think it's highly unlikely what mother could live a single day in the awareness that her son would bear the judgment of God for a world of sinners. But this doesn't mean that she doesn't appreciate any of what Jesus is saying. I would suggest to you that Mary hears more in his voice than we hear. She's his mother after all. She knows how to read between the lines. She can tell in the tone of his voice that what, what she does hear in his voice is, yes, one on one hand, a refusal to act in a way that she desires that is calling attention to himself in a public setting with great fanfare. On the other hand, she detects a willingness to address this potentially destructive situation on his own terms. You say, well, how do you know that? Because I read the next verse. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Verse 3. Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is rebuked for the presumption. In verse 5, Mary now responds as a disciple and is rewarded for her submission. Rewarded how? Well, let's watch it here. As the story now transitions from a disastrous situation to an inconspicuous transformation. An inconspicuous transformation. Verse 6. Now, there were, six, there were set there six water pots of stone. Six stone water jars. There's a lot of detail here, given that um, John is giving us all this detail. You'd be hard-pressed to even believe that he's not there, but some people actually say that, which is ridiculous. He's got a lot of detail here. Six stone water jars. But why highlight six stone water jars? I mean, who cares that they're stone water jars in comparison to other types of jars like clay? Well, the Jews at this wedding cared. The next line explains, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. My version says, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, yours might say something like, they were for the Jewish rites of purification. 
According to the book of Leviticus, while clay jars could become ritually contaminated and have to be destroyed, stone jars, at least according to rabbinical law, could not. So my point is not to bog you down with things that are unnecessary. This is all business about Jewish purification customs. You see, throughout the centuries, Jewish teachers had created extra-biblical laws concerning various washings and cleansings, none of which had to do with personal hygiene, by the way, but were bound up in ritual purification. They had done, my friends, what all moralists do. They created more laws than God did, and in doing so, obscured the reason God originally gave them. A distortion, by the way, that Jesus tackles head-on later on in his ministry. Because while these people were meticulous about the external ceremony, they gave little regard for the cleanliness of the heart, which is infinitely more important to God. Now, in the context of a wedding feast, the ritual washings would have included daily purification, servants pouring water over the hands and feet of the guest, and over various utensils used with preparing food. Given that weddings were community affairs, therefore lots of people lasting an entire week, the need for large quantity of water is quite obvious. This is why John adds yet another detail each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. All told, these jars can contain between 120 and 180 gallons of water for these Jewish purification rites. Now, with all that set in place, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So think about this for a moment, right? All these water pots, they have to be filled with water. Jesus tells them to do that. Did you ever wonder, how will they accomplish that? It's not like they have a hose and a spigot or something that they can fill all these things up, right? So it's, it's obvious to the reader, it should be, that they must fill them from a nearby well. Fill the water pots with water. So John adds, and they filled them up to the brim. Another interesting detail by someone who is obviously an eyewitness. Verse 8, and he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it, verse 9, when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. This is a beautiful thing, right? Beautiful. But now we have to think a little bit. The most common interpretation of these verses is that Jesus, after telling the servants to fill up the stone jars, performs a miracle. Yes, he does. Then he asks the servants to take some of the freshly made wine from the water jars to the master of the banquet, as it were the master of ceremonies. It may be exactly what happened here. However, it overlooks very, a very important fact. The verb here translated draw out is a term commonly used for drawing out water from a well. The way that Jesus would again use this verb in chapter 4 when he meets the Samaritan woman at the well, at Jacob's well. You say, what are you trying to get at? Just this. 
The water turned into wine was freshly drawn from the well. After the water jars had been filled to the brim. A fact that may be indeed reinforced by the adverb here. Look at verse 8. Now, draw some out now. In other words, Jesus is saying, having filled the jars to the brim with water from the well, now draw out more from the well and take it to the master of ceremonies. Why is the the difference here of any significance? I'm not going to tell you just yet. I'll get back to it. But for the time being, in either case, either freshly drawn from the water pots or from the well, a miracle has occurred. And as, as for the master of the banquet or the master of the feast, he is entirely oblivious to the disastrous situation and the miraculous provision. Look at it, verse 9. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. What was plain to him, however, and entirely surprising to him, is the delightful break with convention or with custom, a convention that was considered socially acceptable. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Verse 10, and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. Some versions are a bit misleading here. They say that the guests have had too much to drink. It should read, after the guests have drunk freely. It's rendered that way in the ESV, by the way. You have kept the good wine until now. So let me have just a brief digression here, just a brief digression, because it's my job today here to preach John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. This is not a sermon about the use of wine. It's not a sermon about the ongoing use of alcohol. That is a different person or purpose and for another agenda item on another day. But let's just have just a brief digression With respect to our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, the creation of Jesus is not high-end grape juice. Jesus was not a teetotaler, and nor was he an advocate of such a position. In fact, I would like to remind you, in Luke chapter 7, he was often accused of the very opposite of being a glutton and a drunkard. So while that there are certain virtues in abstaining from alcohol, and in some cases total abstinence is the necessary option for certain people given their proclivity to addiction, the Bible cannot be made to say that the only possible Christian position on this issue is total abstinence. Now, all that being said, that is one side of a very many-faceted issue. The other side... Drunkenness in the Bible is resoundingly condemned. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't use your notion of grace to invalidate that. Drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. What's more, 
the scholarship related to the subject of wine is amazingly consistent. I've just looked at it again just just to uh, prepare for this sermon. In the ancient world, wine was diluted with water to between one-third and one-tenth of its fermented strength, something less strong than most American beers. Undiluted wine, which was about the strength of wine today, was viewed as strong drink. And about this, the Bible does have a great deal to say, given that it mentions strong drink about 60 times. Something to which you should give some consideration if you indeed possess a loyalty to alcohol in its present day form. All of that being said, what's going on here at this wedding? It was customary to serve the highest quality wine at the beginning of a wedding celebration while the palates of people were still sensitive. Then once they had imbibed freely, not necessarily inferring intoxication, which, by the way, I have already brought up, was regarded to these people as contrary to the will of God. Once they had imbibed freely, they would put out the lesser quality wine. But here, Jesus delivers something quite unexpected, something superior to anything this banquet has witnessed. And we'll come back to that. For the moment, don't miss the significance of what's subtle here. There is wine, very good wine here, but there's been no cultivation of grapes, there's been no gathering of grapes, no crushing of grapes, no fermentation process, nothing to do with viticulture in any way, only the alternation, the alteration of the laws of nature by the one who is the Lord of nature, a supernatural transformation of water into wine. And yet all of it, did you notice? quite different than what we say, see today in our own time. Without flamboyance, without ostentation, understated, behind the scenes. And there was no request for money. There was no demand for faith. Everything about this is non-reciprocating. There is no fanfare, no drama, no incantation, no thunderbolts, no waving of hands. The modest water saw its God and blushed. All of it so utterly inconspicuous. The purpose so that the bride and groom, they remain the center of attention, unknowingly spared a scandalous humiliation while granted a heightened exaltation. At the same time, the messianic hour, which had not yet come, was preserved and protected in keeping with the one who ordained it. From a joyous occasion into a disastrous situation spared by an inconspicuous transformation that ultimately proves, last point, to be an efficacious revelation. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. 
So even though the bride and the groom, they didn't see it, the masters of ceremonies didn't see it, all of the guests didn't see it, who saw it? His disciples. And even though prior to this they had known enough about Jesus to follow Him, now because of the glory they had discerned in the sign, they looked past the sign to what end? And His disciples believed in Him. They put their trust in Him. Have you? Have you put your trust in Him? Why should you believe in Jesus Christ? My dear friends, you need to think of this gospel, the gospel of John, like a treasure hunt in which clues have been strategically placed for you to follow. These clues, there's seven of them in fact, point to serve you beyond themselves. They, they, they serve to point you beyond themselves to the treasure, the treasure that has been found by these disciples, Jesus Christ in all of His glory. All of which means that you've missed the point of this story if you regard John 2 as nothing but a basis of your justification for use of wine. It's here to tell you why you should believe in Jesus Christ. A reason to be sure that is very tightly connected with weddings and wine. What do I mean? You have to understand, I heard Laura say it earlier, you have to understand, those of you who like to do Bible study, you need to understand the context of any text is the whole of the Bible. The context of any text is the whole of the Bible. If you've got to figure out what a passage means, then you have to go all the way back to Genesis. And then read everything up to that point, and then you go all the way through the book of Revelation. You don't understand a passage until you understand the passage in its context. And the context here is the whole of the Bible. Here, you read backwards. And what do you find when you read backwards? Oh, that the prophets of the Old Testament spoke repeatedly about a future coming age that would be inaugurated by the Messiah. Given that wine was the standard symbol of joy and happiness and exhilaration, it's no surprise that they're prophesying of this messianic age, this new creation, is repeatedly distinguished by the presence of liberally flowing wine. Wine dripping from the hills. Wine pouring over the mountains. It's everywhere. It's in Jeremiah. It's in Hosea. It's in Joel. It's in Amos. It's everywhere. Then, when we come here, Jesus arrives on the scene. He turns water into wine. And speaking about this same period, this messianic age, Jesus uses the concept of a wedding to symbolize what it will be like. Matthew 22, Matthew 25. Then He likens His disciples as wedding guests who rejoice in the presence of the bridegroom. Mark 2. He is referred to by John the Baptist as the great bridegroom, John 3. And then you read the Bible forward, and what do you discover? That when Je- with the age that Jesus inaugurates in His first coming is consummated in His second coming, that's how it's described. 
Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is where the whole Bible is heading. Which, is, which tells you that John 2 wasn't here to legitimize your use of wine. It's here to tell you that the new creation prophesied in the Old Testament has been inaugurated with the coming of Christ. These stone, I said I'd get back to it, these stone water jars were filled to the brim to illustrate the reality that the time for ceremonial purification has been completely fulfilled. The new creation, symbolized by the superior wine, couldn't be drawn from the old jars. Or to use a different set of terms that Jesus uses, new wine can't be contained in old wineskins. It will destroy them. Jesus has come to replace the water of Judaism with the wine of Christianity. Not merely to reform the old creation, but to inaugurate the new creation. And just in case you aren't quite convinced yet, one last little clue. In case you've forgotten, when did this occur? We read it early. Chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day. Have you noticed? If you've read this gospel, have you noticed Early on, you have to pay attention, but there is a lot of days mentioned in the opening section of John's Gospel. Notice where it all begins. Chapter 1, verse 19. You can go there. Just back just a bit. Go there with me. Chapter 1, verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? That's day one. Now look at verse 29. The next day? That's day two. Now look at verse 35. The next day? That's day three. Now look at verses 41 and 42. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and to tell him they had found the Messiah. That is Christ. That is the Christ. And when he brought him to Jesus, nearly every scholar on the planet believes this yet to be another day, that Andrew and John don't meet Jesus until 4 p.m. the prior afternoon. So then you look at verse 43, the next day, that's day 5. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. That is inclusive of the day that Jesus met Nathaniel. When you add them up, you have seven days. You have a week of days. Seven days. And how does this gospel begin? In the beginning. Borrowed from where? Genesis 1. Which begins how? In the beginning, followed by a series of seven days. 
That's what we have right here in John. It's a literary echo. You've got the announcement of a new Genesis with a new week of days that culminates in a wedding celebration distinguished by the abundance of the best wine. Why should you believe in Jesus Christ? It's here, it's plain and simple, because He is the inaugurator of the new creation. Because sooner or later, my dear friends, your wine will run out. Sooner than later, everything associated with the old creation will prove inadequate. Your end might not be that of Hemingway's, but if you set your heart on, pers- on the pursuit of satisfaction that comes from squeezing every pleasure out of this life, sooner or later you will find yourself empty, grieving, and hopeless, licking the bottom of the glass for any residual drop. And there just isn't anything else. The wine has run out. But listen, it always runs out. It's the distinguishing feature of this old creation. Your thirst, my friends, this morning is not for another fleeting pleasure. It is for the only satisfying person. The life you seek, the only life that truly satisfies is abundant life, it's ever eternal life, the God's kind of life. And the only one it can be found in is the one who came for the purpose of bringing it to you. Why should you believe in Jesus Christ? Here is the answer from John chapter 2. Because He is the inaugurator of the new creation A new creation that addresses your deepest needs. A new creation that begins when you read the sign, see the glory, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. It's it's why the Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. Has the wine run out? You finally discovered that a new career won't satisfy you. You finally discover that a new relationship will never satisfy you. You finally discover that more money will not satisfy you. You finally discover that beauty will not satisfy you. My friends, drink from the only vintage that will satisfy you forever. Meet the one who makes all things new, Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Dear Heavenly Father, wherever we are in the Bible, it is always, always, always the old, old story when we see how a text fits within its ultimate context, it's always the old, old story. How we get there from week to week may be a different route or a different way than we got there last week, but in the end, it's always that. It is the purpose of Your Word. Forgive us, Lord and God, for regarding this book as an inspired book of virtues a textbook filled with morals. We accept that there are moral teachings in Your Word, Lord, and we regard them with the greatest of seriousness. But they are always, always, always an active 
response to your great work of redemption that is found fully and finally in Jesus. I pray that you would be with those of us that are already Christians in this room who may may perhaps have fallen prey to the lie, the distortion that we can find satisfaction in a different relationship, a bigger house, a more successful career. The old creation is marked by an inescapable dissatisfaction, the inability to provide us with what we need in our deepest selves. I remember Augustine say, Lord, and he was right, our hearts are restless until they find our resting in you. Forgive us, O Lord and God, for making an idolatry out of this life and its pleasures. Father, we pray this morning for those who are hearing that aren't Christians, that this is the day you have brought them to this place. This is the day that they heard on Facebook. This is the very message that they needed to hear. Jesus offers eternal life, and this eternal life is what they need. Eternal life is the gift of Christ to give. I pray and ask you, O Lord and God, that unbelievers in this place this very morning would finally rest their faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. O Lord and God, remind us always, that eternal satisfaction is found in the one who is in the, the inaugurator of an entirely new creation. And for those of us who've embraced him, there will be a final consummation on that great and final day when we will dine with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We love you and we thank you for your word. Amen.